Due to the graphic nature of this case, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes dramatizations and discussions of murder and assault that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. On the morning of June 28, 1948, Clifford and Ruth Reed sat in their small living room in Sandtown, Illinois. Their 17-year-old daughter, Mary Jane, had been missing for three days. The pair was waiting for news from the police, or even from Mary Jane herself, calling with a simple explanation of why she disappeared. And then, finally... The family's phone rang. Clifford and Ruth quickly answered it, but there was an unfamiliar voice on the line. It was a local psychic and they needed to share a chilling vision about Mary Jane's whereabouts. The Reeds were desperate for answers, so they invited the psychic over for a reading. And together in the family's modest home, Clifford and Ruth turned to the spirit realm for news about their missing daughter. The psychic said that Mary Jane was still alive, but hurt. The man who abducted her had a dark complexion and was several years her senior. And now, he was holding her prisoner in what the psychic sensed was a basement or a storm cellar. The psychic couldn't tell them any specifics about her location, but they promised that the family would find their daughter soon. The prediction would prove true, but not in the way that the Reeds had hoped. This is Unsolved Murders, True Crime Stories, a Spotify original from Parcast. I'm your host, Carter Roy. And I'm your host, Wendy McKenzie. Every Tuesday, we dive into the world of a real unsolved murder and try to solve the case. You can find episodes of Unsolved Murders and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. This is our final episode on the Lover's Lane double murder of Mary Jane Reed and Stanley Scridla. Last week, we covered Mary Jane's difficult upbringing in rural Oregon, Illinois, and her turbulent relationship with Vince Varco, an abusive chief deputy sheriff. This week, we'll dig into the botched murder investigation and meet the bar owner fighting to uncover the truth after 72 years. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. June 25, 1948, was supposed to be a leisurely morning for Illinois State Highway worker John Eckert. He planned to spend his day fishing along the sparkling blue-green banks of the Rock River near his hometown of Oregon, Illinois. But as he drove down Country Farm Road, he noticed something odd a single brown Oxford shoe. At around 6.20 a.m., John Eckerd pulled his car over to pick it up. But as he bent down to collect the lonely shoe, he noticed strange dark streaks across the gravel road. A trail of deep burgundy led directly towards the roadside ditch. Nothing could prepare Eckerd for the horror he found there. He followed the trail to find a man's bloody body laying face down in the muddy ditch. The corpse's head was blackened and melted like candle wax. The whole scene reeked of gasoline and decay. Eckert bolted for the nearest payphone and called the police. 
Ogle County Sheriffs arrived at the scene within the hour. Chief Deputy Sheriff Vince Varco himself oversaw the investigation as Sheriff Joseph Moss collected evidence from the gruesome crime scene. Oh my, what's that smell? <coughs> it's like charred, rancid meat. Check the pockets, see if there's a wallet so we can ID this poor sap. Nothing, sir. He's cleaned out. <sighs> Paperwork on this one's gonna be fun. All right, turn him over. <sighs> Wait, it looks like... Someone shot his whole stomach apart. Yeah. Must have angered the wrong man. Heck, he probably deserved it. Why do you say that? Oh, uh, just a hunch. Two sets of tire tracks drove away from the murder scene, which led investigators to believe that two assailants had been involved. Moss followed the tracks for about a mile, where they found an abandoned Buick. The car was parked across from the Stenhouse, Oregon's most popular tavern. Inside the car, the sheriffs found five 32 caliber bullet casings and a cigarette butt stained with red lipstick. The second car was nowhere to be found. Meanwhile, the body was taken to the county coroner, Fred Horner. Horner officially identified the corpse as Stanley Scridla, a 28-year-old telephone line repairman from Rockford, Illinois. Horner confirmed Stanley Scridla was shot four or five times, three of those times in the stomach. The gunshot wounds were deemed the cause of death, although an accelerant, likely gasoline, had also been poured on his face and upper torso and set on fire. The particularly cruel death led Sheriff Moss to suspect the murder was personal. The gunshots to the stomach, close to the groin, made this particularly apparent. To Moss, it seemed like the attacker wanted to humiliate the victim by mangling his manhood. In order to find this killer, Moss first needed to piece together the victim's final moments. Thankfully, this was an easy task. Scridlaw wasn't from Oregon, and outsiders stood out in such a small town. Police quickly found witnesses who could help figure out the victim's time in Oregon. They discovered Stanley Scridlaw had driven 25 miles from Rockford to Oregon to take 17-year-old local girl Mary Jane Reed out on a first date. And judging by the lipsticked cigarette butt in the car, Mary Jane was likely with him up until his death. So Sheriff Moss headed to the Reed home looking for answers. The Reeds lived in a modest gray A-frame house in Sandtown, a working-class neighborhood on the other side of the Rock River. As he drove, the Reeds were preparing for a wedding. Their son, Donald Reed, was scheduled to be married at the local church the next day, and the family was in a frenzy. But a vital member of the bridal party was missing, Mary Jane. Mary Jane, wake up! I need my heels! If I find out you took my favorite heels last night, I'm going to kill you. Hello? Mary Jane? Mom! Mom, Mary Jane's gone! Did anyone see her come home last night? I went to bed early. She didn't phone? Well, there aren't any messages. Check with Susan and Anna, then the office. Someone has to have seen her. This strange absence was unlike Mary Jane. She always let her family know she was going to be late. 
and Mary Jane had been looking forward to her brother's wedding, she wouldn't have missed it for the world. When Sheriff Moss showed up at their door on the afternoon of June 25, 1948, their worst fears were confirmed. Moss came to the Reeds hoping for answers, but all he got was more questions. First, a murder. Now, a missing girl. It seemed likely that Mary Jane was abducted by Stanley Scridla's killer, but the killer's motive for the crime was unknown. Sheriff Moss believed the murder abduction was most likely a crime of passion. The killer's actions appeared vindictive and jealous, so he turned his attention to the couple's past lovers. A deputy in Rockford had interviewed and cleared all four of Stanley Scridla's old girlfriends already, which left Mary Jane's old flames. Moss had heard that Mary Jane had dated around a lot, but two clear suspects stood out on her list of ex-lovers. One of Mary Jane's exes, a 19-year-old Navy veteran, was a suspect because he had spent time in a psychiatric asylum. According to newspaper reports from the time, this man was rejected by Mary Jane. The day after the murders, he packed up and moved to La Crosse, Wisconsin. However, the evidence linking him to the crime was insufficient. The ex couldn't be ruled out completely, but it seemed unlikely that he did it. This left Moss's own co-worker, Chief Deputy Sheriff Vince Varco. Mary Jane Reed's relationship with Varco was a rocky affair, one she had ended just before the murder. Varco was also a known hothead and womanizer with a rumored history of abuse. On June 23rd, the day before Mary Jane and Stanley's date, witnesses reported that Varco and Mary Jane had a very public fight and he'd slapped her. Curiously, Vince Varco reported for duty on the morning after the murders without his service revolver. It was starting to look like Vince Varco was hiding something, so Moss headed to Varco's cabin to confront him. Thought I might find you here. How's the fish today? Nah, just nibbles. What brings you by? Official business, I'm afraid. Regarding Mary Jane Reed. What about her? She's missing. Near three days now, and the fellow she was seeing turned up dead. The body was found not too far from here, in fact. What are you getting at, Sheriff? Where's your gun, Vince? My gun? I told you. I sold it. Some guy at the log cabin inn took a shine to it. The casings found in the victim's car are 32 caliber. Same as the government-issued service pistol you so conveniently sold. Funny coincidence, don't you think? And her disappearing right after she ends it with you? Doesn't look good, Vince. So, you're here to arrest me? Where is she? I don't know, but she isn't here. Search the place if you don't believe me. I think I'll take you up on that. Mary Jane Reed wasn't at Vince Varco's cabin, but Moss didn't have to wait long for answers. On the morning of June 29, 1948, a truck driver named Harold Ziegler was hauling sand from the nearby National Silica plant when he pulled over to chat with another driver. As he climbed out of his truck, he smelled something rotten. He followed the stench into the brush and discovered its source, the decomposing body of Mary Jane Reed. Up next, we'll learn more about Mary Jane Reed's murder, the botched investigation, and alleged cover-up. Now, back to the story. 
On June 29, 1948, 17-year-old Mary Jane Reed's body was found mere feet from the road her father drove to work every day. She lay face down in a thicket beside a stretch of highway that police had already checked multiple times in the days that followed her disappearance. Somehow, they had missed her, or she had only recently appeared. Mary Jane was naked, save for her bra and underwear. The clothes she had worn on her date were tossed beside her in the weeds. Red scratches lined her shins, and blood caked her exposed torso. The remains were transported to Fred Horner, the same coroner who had conducted Stanley Scridlaw's autopsy a few days earlier. Since forensic investigation was still developing in the late 1940s, Horner's review of Mary Jane's remains was cursory at best. He quickly concluded that Mary Jane Reed died from a single bullet wound to the back of her head. While Horner performed the autopsy, Sheriff Moss went to the Reed house to deliver the news. Mrs. Reed, it's Sheriff Moss. Oh, my Lord. Wait, just a minute. Uh, You found her, haven't you? Oh, thank you, Lord. I knew you'd come through. Uh, Yes, we found her, but... Clifford! Did you hear that? They found her! Mrs. Reed, your daughter is dead. Her body was discovered this morning down by the silica plant. I am very sorry. But we were down that way. We searched that road so many times. Once the Reed family found out about Mary Jane's death, the Oregon County Sheriff's Department rushed to get her funeral arrangements together. Mary Jane's remains were not checked for signs of sexual assault or rape. There was no follow-up investigation or a more in-depth autopsy. No fingernail scrapings were taken or other samples. It was like they couldn't wait to get her body in the ground. Ruth brought Mary Jane's bridesmaid's dress to the police station and asked that her daughter be buried in it. She told them Mary Jane had saved up to buy it, and she'd been so excited to wear the dress to her brother's upcoming wedding. Ruth hoped it would bring her spirit some happiness. Mary Jane Reed's funeral was held the following morning on June 30, 1948, at the Church of God. She was buried at Daysville Cemetery, just outside of Oregon. It was a closed casket ceremony, so no one saw the body before it was buried. Instead, her picture had been framed and was displayed on the lid to let her family remember her as she was. The family's priest, Reverend Sidney Magaw, conducted the final rites. Nearly 100 people attended Mary Jane's funeral. Citizens of Sandtown in Greater Oregon gathered by her burial plot in the shade of a large pine tree to grieve and celebrate the life of a beautiful, vibrant young girl. After the ceremony, Ruth Reed headed home and drew all the curtains closed. She was convinced that Mary Jane's killer would come for them next. In a panic, she moved their couch away from the walls and told her youngest son, Warren Lee, to sleep and play back there, hidden out of sight. But the days dragged on, and the killer never turned up. Although Oregon and Rockford County Sheriffs had interviewed over 50 witnesses and persons of interest by July 1st, 1948, it seemed every single one of their leads hit a dead end. In your own words, please describe to me what you saw. 
I drove down Country Farm Road just after midnight. I saw a nice blue and gray Pontiac parked behind a Buick. A beat-up car was trailing Stanley and Mary Jane. Did you see the driver? It was an elderly guy, white hair and a mustache. It was a younger black man. I heard it was two brothers from out of town. <sighs> Thank you all for your time. While a few witnesses did come forward, the general population of Oregon, Illinois, seemed hesitant to talk to the police. There was a growing sense of unease about town, possibly out of fear that admitting anything might make you a target. But while the citizens of Oregon didn't speak to authorities, they certainly whispered to each other, and a name floated through town. Vince Varco. Varco was conspicuously absent during most of the murder investigation, and it didn't go unnoticed. He was content to keep to the town's fringes, smoking and fishing at his clubhouse on the river. But the murder investigation wasn't going away. And according to police reports, Varco refused to cooperate. But Varco still had friends around the sheriff's department, and as the investigation progressed, something strange started happening. Despite weeks of comprehensive witness interviews, the case file was suspiciously light, and key evidence, like bullet casings, began disappearing from the crime lab. Hey, Varco, did you take the Skridla file? I wanted to make a copy of Ms. Avery's testimony, and it's not here. Why would I have it? I can think of a few good reasons, and a few bad ones as well. I'm sure it just got misplaced. <laughs> Come on, I'll help you look. Beth told me the bullet slugs are missing from the evidence locker, too. Is that a statement or an accusation? All I know is ever since I talked to you, stuff's been going missing. Stuff that could make or break this case. You accusing me of something, Sheriff? On July 7th, 1948, the victim's death certificates and the coroner's reports were filed with the county registrar. Strangely, neither document was signed off by the coroner, Fred Horner. But Vince Varco's own wife, Martha, filed them all the same for the death certificate. As leads began to dry up that summer, a former Ogle County Sheriff named Delos Blanchard was brought onto the case as a special investigator. He pursued the theory that Stanley Skridla and Mary Jane Reed were murdered by two men who wanted to rob Stanley and followed the couple that night. While Blanchard was on the case, two men, Carl Hubner and Noel Leonard of Peoria, Illinois, were arrested in connection to the Reed-Skridla case. They were released, however, after ballistics concluded that their guns were not used in the murder. Another pair, two brothers named Lloyd and Perry DeShazo, were also investigated in connection with the murder. They were gamblers who frequented Rockford, Illinois, and on the day of the murder, they'd allegedly joined a game that was being held in a church near Stanley Skridla's home. As the rumor goes, Stanley caught the DeShazo brothers cheating and took their pot, a total of $70. Since he'd mentioned his date with Mary Jane during the game, the DeShazos knew where he'd be that night. So they followed him the 25 miles down to Oregon, Illinois, and waited for the right moment to attack. No evidence tied the DeShazo brothers to the murder, so they were never tried or prosecuted. But while this story made for a compelling theory for Stanley's murder, it doesn't explain why Mary Jane was kidnapped and killed as well. 
With no new breakthroughs in the case, the Oregon County Sheriff's Office archived the file. The more time passed, the more the Reed-Skridla murders faded from memory. For the most part, life moved on. But throughout the years, multiple attempts were made to revive the case. In the early 1960s, Sheriff Bill Spencer reopened the case and was shocked to learn that most of the documentation was missing. Hey, Janine, can you come in here, please? Yes, sir. I asked you for the Reed Skridla file. Where is it? Well, it looks like you're holding it. There's 10 pages here, tops. There should be at least 50 witness statements alone. And what about the crime scene photos? Ballistic reports? I don't know. That's all records had on the case. That can't be right. By 1963, the case file was all but empty. An investigator named Jerry Brooks decided to retrace Sheriff Moss's steps in hopes of reviving the case. Brooks re-interviewed witnesses and tried to find the missing evidence. But Brooks was also a very close friend of Vince Varco's, and he was adamant that Varco wasn't the killer. So although Brooks rebuilt the case file, his investigation was fundamentally biased. He personally liked the gambling debt theory and pegged two men from Monroe Center, Wisconsin, as the killers. But since so much time had passed, Brooks found it difficult to prosecute anyone for the crime. So he moved on. As Jerry Brooks put the Reed Skridla case to rest, it seemed the investigation had met its final dead end. Many of the original investigators and witnesses had since passed away, and it was likely that even the killer had died too. With no hope of prosecuting the guilty parties, Mary Jane Reed's would-be crusaders gave up their search for the truth. But just when it seemed as though Mary Jane's soul would never be able to rest, her ghost allegedly rose from the grave to finally find justice. Coming up, we'll meet Mr. Stevens, a man who says he's haunted by Mary Jane Reed's ghost. Now, back to the story. By the 1990s, the Stenhouse Bar and Grill in Oregon, Illinois, had fallen onto hard times. The once-beloved bar was the last place Mary Jane Reed and Stanley Skridlow were seen alive. But the town had mostly forgotten about the young lovers' deaths, and the Stenhouse, too. The property had changed hands and been renamed a few times after the death of the tavern's original owner. But in 1998, the old bar was purchased by a 49-year-old former insurance fraud investigator turned dinner theater producer from Elgin, Illinois. For the sake of privacy, we'll refer to him as Mr. Stevens. As a newcomer to Oregon, Illinois, Mr. Stevens initially wasn't aware of the Stenhouse's colorful history. But as he renovated the property, he reportedly began to notice some strange, unexplained phenomena. The tavern would sometimes get icy cold, even when the air conditioning was off, and the jukebox would blaze to life on its own. Plates and pans would even crash to the floor, seemingly on their own. Mr. Stevens didn't consider himself a superstitious man, but he started to wonder if the Stenhouse was haunted. There were more than a few possible specters. According to local legend, 
The bar's previous owner, Esther Stenhouse, died on the premises in the 1950s, and her ghost was rumored to haunt the tavern. And since Oregon, Illinois, had been built on what was formerly tribal land, the bar may have also been haunted by Native American spirits. In 1998, Mr. Stevens and his wife reopened the Stenhouse, now called the Roadhouse. The restaurant had a kitschy western saloon theme, embracing its roots as a general store and old dance hall. The Roadhouse had some modest success, and as Mr. Stevens became more ingrained in the local Oregon community, he decided to enter the county's mayoral election. That year also happened to be the 50th anniversary of the Reed-Skridla 1948 double murder. A fact Stevens discovered when the local paper ran a story commemorating the attack. Remembering Mary Jane Reed and Stanley Skridla on the 50th anniversary of Oregon's Lover's Lane slaying, investigators are no closer to catching the couple's killer. (laughs) Yeah, but we all know who did it. No mystery there. Really? Then why does the paper say the murder was never solved? You have to have evidence to make an arrest. And they took care of that. A real shame. Look at this picture. She was beautiful. It's strange, but she almost looks familiar. Well, this place used to be one of her haunts. Help! Help! Maybe it still is. The article piqued Mr. Stevens' curiosity about the murder, and he started to look into the case. Mary Jane Reed's story resonated with him, and the more he learned, the more invested he became. He even started to promise that he'd reopen the murder case if he became mayor. And when Stevens won the election in April of 1999, he kept that promise. He reopened the Reed-Skridla case. But his time as mayor became more complicated. Although Mr. Stevens owned property, the Roadhouse, in Oregon, Illinois, he did not live there full-time. His permanent address was in Kane County, where he had also run for another office. Oregon bylaw stated that the mayoral seat had to be occupied by an established resident of the town, and even though Mr. Stevens had been a part of the community, he was ruled ineligible. This led to a difficult lawsuit, which was finally resolved in 2001. In the meantime, Mr. Stevens continued to investigate the Reed-Skridla murders on his own. But like those before him, he quickly ran into several large roadblocks. Most of the witnesses were dead, and those who weren't did not want to talk. They warned Mr. Stevens that uncovering the truth would only cause more hurt. For the most part, the Skridla family had been forced to move on. Mary Jane's mother, Ruth, suffered a mental breakdown shortly after the murder and never quite recovered. She and her husband, Clifford, died within a few years of each other. But Mary Jane's last surviving sibling, Warren Reed, continued to seek justice for his sister. Mr. Stevens was determined to get to the heart of the case. Over the years, Stevens poured an estimated $100,000 of his own money into his private investigation. He hired detectives and purchased countless how-to books on homicides and criminal justice. He also arranged for aerial photos to be taken of the town, contacted forensic pathologists, and recruited a reporter to write a book about the case. 
Eventually, the roadhouse became a shrine to Mary Jane's ghost. Her photos adorned the walls alongside newspaper clippings about the case. On the second floor balcony, a mannequin dressed in her likeness overlooked the bar. Mr. Stevens regularly held seances and invited psychics to tour the roadhouse. He even went so far as to request to be buried beside Mary Jane upon his own death, a petition her younger brother, Warren Reed, quickly denied. But for all of his offbeat antics, Mr. Stevens was an effective ally. His self-funded investigation was comprehensive, and Warren Reed saw that Stevens had the means and the drive to actually make progress in the case. And so, when Stevens approached Warren about exhuming Mary Jane's body, Warren finally said yes. Stevens was convinced that DNA evidence would be able to provide more clues about her death and maybe even identify her killer after all this time. And so in August 2005, Mary Jane Reed's casket was opened for the first time in 57 years. Recording. We're in the Ogle County Coroner's Office, and this is the second autopsy of Mary Jane Reed. There is a body bag inside the casket, which is unusual. A wadded-up white dress wrapped in newspaper clippings was also inside the casket. The body is well-preserved for its age, although decomposition has partially exposed the thigh and hip bones on the left side. The body is nude, apart from undergarments. The head and part of the spinal column are detached. Hmm. Unclear if this separation was one of the victim's injuries, or if this was done during the first autopsy. I've never seen this before. When Mary Jane's casket was reopened, the coroner found several strange things. It turned out Mary Jane hadn't been buried in her bridesmaid's dress, as her mother had requested, Instead, the dress had been balled up in newspaper and crammed into the coffin like an afterthought. Mary Jane's body was still in the coroner's body bag. But strangest of all was the fact that her head had been completely severed from her body. After Mary Jane's murder, a ghost story started going around Oregon, Illinois, that her headless ghost wandered the Rock River shores searching for her lost body part. Before the exhumation, Warren Reed and Mr. Stevens had dismissed the tale. It was a folk story, something to strike fear into the hearts of children. But it looked like there was some truth to the nightmare after all. The new autopsy definitively proved that the Oregon Sheriff's Department was negligent with their case, if not actively trying to cover something up. The body hadn't been properly interred. Mary Jane was just shoved in a body bag inside the coffin. It was clear that whoever buried her didn't show her any respect. And then there was the severed head. There was no way to tell whether her head had been cut off after the murder or later, during the autopsy. Her death certificate didn't even mention it. Suddenly, Mr. Stevens began to wonder whether the head in the casket even belonged to Mary Jane at all. After the autopsy, Mary Jane's remains were reburied, except for her skull and vertebrae, which were sent to a lab for testing. Mr. Stevens and Reed jointly petitioned for custody of Mary Jane Reed's skull. Considering the state of her body, they no longer trusted the Oregon police to handle the investigation properly. It was time to take matters into their own hands. 
A judge granted that the bones be given to Warren Reed in 2006, but it would be another year before Mr. Stevens and Reed could get answers. Although Mr. Stevens had paid for the exhumation, he claimed that Ogle County refused to relinquish ownership of the investigative materials, including x-rays taken of the body and a videotape of the autopsy. Stevens and Reed took Ogle County to court, and eventually the tape and x-rays were turned over. It would seem they were right not to trust the Ogle County Sheriff's Department. The last 27 minutes of audio had been scrubbed from the videotape of the autopsy. When questioned about the missing audio, the Oregon Sheriff's Department gave no explanation. The missing 27 minutes were never found, and the timing of the error seemed awfully convenient. The audio cuts out right when the sheriff's department and the coroner started arguing about something they found in the body and examining the skull. Mr. Stevens began to suspect the audio had been erased intentionally, and he also started to wonder if the county had withheld the x-rays and the videotape because they had something to hide. Maybe the skull had a secret of its own. In 2007, Mr. Stevens took the skull to Dr. Linda Kleppinger, a professor emeritus in anthropology at the University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign. Along with a colleague, Dr. John Moore, Kleppinger conducted an extensive study of the skull and several vertebrae and concluded they did not match with the remainder of Mary Jane Reed's bones. According to Kleppinger's report, the skull belonged to another person, similar in age to Mary Jane, who had likely died from a gunshot wound to the head. However, Kleppinger concluded that this mystery person had been shot in the face, not the back of the head, as Mary Jane's original autopsy had indicated. It was the first new clue the case had seen in nearly 60 years, and Mr. Stevens was certain it would lead him to the truth. Armed with this shocking revelation, Mr. Stevens approached one of Stanley Scridla's nephews and proposed exhuming Stanley's body. He thought Mary Jane's skull and the murder weapon, a 32 caliber handgun, might be in Stanley's casket. His request was approved, and in May 2015, Stanley Scridla's body was exhumed. Unfortunately, this was where the case ran cold. Apart from the discovery of two bullet slugs and a 32 caliber handgun, nothing new was uncovered during the exhumation. The bullets and gun were turned over to authorities in 2015, but only one bullet was intact enough to be analyzed, and it was not a match with the gun. Since then, the investigation has stalled, but Mr. Stevens is still hopeful the murder will one day be solved. Mary Jane Reed's head may still be out there somewhere, waiting to be found. So, given all the evidence, I think Vince Varco was most likely the killer. He had the motive, witnesses placed him in the same room as Mary Jane on the night of the murder, and his pattern of violence and abuse makes him the most obvious candidate. I agree, and so did a lot of Oregon residents. Vince wanted Mary Jane all to himself. Seeing her with Stanley Scridla at the log cabin inn would have been the perfect catalyst to escalate his already violent tendencies. Plus, he had the means and the support of the Oregon Sheriff's Department to cover up the case. Whatever the truth may be, the murders of Mary Jane Reed and Stanley Scridla had a massive impact on the small town of Oregon, Illinois, and Mr. Stevens still believes Mary Jane Reed's ghost haunts the roadhouse. 
waiting for justice that's over 70 years too late. Thanks again for tuning into Unsolved Murders. We'll be back next Tuesday with a new episode. For more information on the Mary Jane Reed and Stanley Skridla case, amongst the many sources we used, we found Mary Jane's Ghost, The Legacy of a Murder in Small Town America by Ted Gregory to be extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Unsolved Murders and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. If we live till next time. Unsolved Murders True Crime Stories is a Spotify original from Parcast. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Michael Langsner, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Isabella Way. This episode of Unsolved Murders was written by Tracy Nicoletti, with writing assistance by Giles Hofseth. The amazing cast of voice actors includes Joe Hernandez, Eddie Lee, KG Tang, Laura Faye Smith, and Jen Wong. It stars Wendy McKenzie and Carter Roy. 